Hello, and welcome to Beat Seeker. I'm Matt McButter. And I'm Mike Weider. Beat Seeker is a podcast that explores the changing world of music technology and discovery. In this episode, we speak to artists Dan Kurtz and Jamie Shields. Longtime members of the Toronto music scene, Jamie and Dan, along with Darren Shearer, formed The New Deal in 1998, fusing electronic music with live improvisation. Dan also formed the electro-pop band Dragonette with singer-songwriter Martina Sorbara. In past Beat Seeker episodes, we've covered how new technologies like streaming, social media, and online concerts are changing the industry. In this episode, we wanted to get the artist's take on these trends. And so we sit down with Dan and Jamie to discuss how technology is changing everything from how they make a living to how they make music and how they interact with fans. Dan and Jamie, welcome to Beat Seeker. Thanks for having us. So Jamie and Dan... BeatSeeker explores how technology is changing music. So we've spoken to a lot of people at music tech companies, and we want to gain the perspective of artists. We want to hear how new technologies have changed things for artists, for better, for worse, in terms of connecting with fans, finding new audiences, and how the economics are changing with new technologies. Before we get into that, can you provide a little background on your history in the business? Sure. Well, I can start. This is Jamie talking. Dan and I actually have been musical and business partners since we were, I'd say, 15 years old. We've been uh, in bands since high school, definitely. And as we graduated from high school and into college and everything, we remained as bandmates and and business partners and have basically been playing music together for good 30 plus years. Uh, We've seen a lot of differences in well, in a lot of things, in the music industry, in the live touring industry, in the music promotion industry, in the recording industry, all the sort of elements of uh, the music business have been through a number of dramatic turns since we started picking up instruments and playing together. Uh, it's It's been uh, eye-opening. <laughs> some of it has been surprising and some of it has, not, has mm-hmm. been a little not so surprising based on what we know from our experience with the record industry, at least, uh, how we have ended up where we are right now as, you know, as a group of musicians and as people in the industry. I think a lot of people could have seen what was coming and we certainly have seen it coming over the past 20 years, at least. Dan has a slightly different CV than mine because even as we have worked together, there, Dan has spread his wings and perhaps been a little more of a globalist than than me. I'm I'm far more provincial. I've I've stuck closer to our hemisphere. Dan, you want? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, with the addition of, uh, in addition to the New Deal with Jamie, which I I think is a a band that very much. Um, experienced some of the more thrilling opportunities that advances in tech enabled, uh, both in terms of how how we connected to fans, how connect how fans connected each other to us, and also how we made and recorded music on stage, and 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 right down to the kind of effects that I can use on my bass are all an, an ever evolving nod to advances in tech. All of which have been I, I those are all all super beneficial. In addition to that, I played for a long time in a band with my now ex-wife called Dragonette, which had a, you know, whatever, a kind of a, a fun storied pop international pop explosion kind of experience, which had a lot of touring, but also literally rode the the last crest of the, I would say, like the traditional record, big record deal that you could get at the time in the last place on earth that you could do that, which was in the UK, um, and uh, wh- which was still firmly based in a principled belief the record industry was going to stay the way it was and then in real time we watched it go from you know uh counting 
uh, physical singles sold by week in terms of how to chart the success of your band to um, all of our stuff leaking out onto the internet and nobody ever buying a record again as a result of it being plentifully available online and then now streaming. And so, um, yeah, I think as Jamie said earlier, we have had the, ex we've, we've experienced probably, I think that over the span of the 30 plus years that we've been in music, probably the most dynamic shift or uh, we, uh, several of the most, um, I think, seismic shifts in the music industry short of when they created the, um, the, the wax recording cylinder. Record player. So, so some of those seismic shifts, yeah, obviously moved, you know, the ground, the ground literally moved beneath your feet. I mean, the, the, that first shift from physical media to let's call it Napster, right? The yeah. Napster day is the people just downloading your stuff. Yeah. How did that, how did that change things for you as, as artists? Well, for new deal, it made the new deal, right? <laughs> like. Well, and also I was going to say that we were slightly ahead of the curve of that, right? Because we had, uh, for the New Deal at least, uh, we had come from an environment where uh, audience members were not only allowed but encouraged to record our shows and then trade them among themselves, right? So there had been this, uh, at the time, I would say maybe like a fuzzy gray market of people who were taking what was a commodity, which was a recording of a live show, and using them as almost like an underground economy, but completely as a barter system, uh, to trade shows. And we encouraged that. We had a special section that people uh, could record our shows. Uh, we would put up our shows for people to trade, because to us, the currency was uh, promotion. So when that started to happen in terms of uh, Napster... Um, LimeWire, uh, the early 2000 peer-to-peer -peer platforms, that was nothing new to us by that point. Our bread and butter for us was to be able to go and play concerts. And you weren't able to replicate that by listening to the show. I mean, the experience of being there was the value, right? The purchase of the ticket enabled you to see the band and to experience in time, real time, with the band, that particular concert. So with people taking uh, those concerts and trading them for free, for us, the benefit was the promotion. So when that started to come around that people were trading songs for free or, you know, uploading for other people to download, that was not as dramatic a shift or a surprise for us as it was for, say, you know, and I'm not putting us on their level, but for bands like Metallica, who one day woke up and who had lived their entire musical life, uh, as Dan had put it, by checking the SoundScan charts and seeing today we sold this amount in Yugoslavia and today we sold this amount in Italy. Uh, and then they woke up and it was like, whoa, what happened? Everybody has our music, but nobody's buying it. Nobody's paying for it. They weren't aware of this environment that we were steeped in from basically the beginning of the New Deal. So it was less of a, of a surprise for us as it might have been for 98% of the other bands. Mm -hmm. And I guess economically, are you saying that you guys made all your money from shows and that was the primary driver? So in effect, piracy didn't really impact that. It was more like maybe a good thing and that you had more promotion, more distribution of people that trade these recordings. Absolutely. It was a bit of a, the, the tail wagging the dog because forever and a day in the music business, bands use the concept of a live performance to promote a record. And for us, we used a record to promote our live performance. It made it a little more difficult to make records and we can get into the technology of that um, shortly. But And in the long run to make money too. 
<laughs> like the benefit of a record is that it makes money while you sleep touring. We were the product. Right. And right. It required. Yeah. I, but, and that, but that's the, that's the, the, the burden that every musician now has to bear. Right. At the time that was a conscious choice. Some people said we were ahead of the curve. Other people say we were just lazy <laughs> and didn't want to promote our records. We just wanted to go on tour because it was easy for us to do. But I think that it was a little bit of both. I mean, we understood that our value was in the live show. And yes, you, the record can make money for you while you're sleeping. But anybody who had uh, their eyes open to the music industry in the late 90s, early 2000s would have seen that that I mean, just. The, the concept of the record label thinking, and, and this is this is quite indicative of the music industry for decades, but particularly at this moment in time in the late 90s, early 2000s, that as the, the belief was if we squash Napster, all of this will go away. Right. That if we if we get rid of Napster, then we have we have solved this problem. We have swept it under the rug and we'll never see it again. That, of course, is the most mis and now with the benefit of hindsight. We know that this is the most misguided concept around. But even at the time, everybody at the forefront of musical technology, uh, bands like us and, and, and other artists of similar ilk, realize that that's silliness you're you're playing whack-a-mole you're just knocking down napster and next is going to come limewire and next is going to come you know grokster or whatever's going to come it, it would never stop because you know i i've used this story before but my nephew who's now you know a, a more than a teenager but at the time in the early 2000s uh mid-2000s was a teenager he never bought a record he never contemplated buying a record his his deal was i i've got a thousand platforms here that i can get this album or song and i'm gonna love it but i'm <laughs> buy it i'm not gonna buy it are you crazy and i remember having a conversation he said can you name me a couple albums bands that i you know i'd like and so he named him some stuff this was at a family dinner and at the end of the night i said so listen buddy uh i will uh i'll drop off those cds if you want to hear them he's like oh no i already downloaded them thanks for the recommendations <laughs> And, and it's like that's that's and that was normal this is normal this is the new normal my kids who are you know 15 and 12 they don't they would never ever consider the purchase of a piece of music that's just that's gone that's a seismic shift mm -hmm. right it's like people watching tv or watching stuff on youtube or wherever it might be netflix you pay subscription those things you pay subscription but there are a million things on youtube that you can listen to and watch that people never consider buy mm -hmm. you know i i know a few people maybe one of them's joining us in this podcast right now that if should you suggest that you watch a movie that to pay for it or to go somewhere to watch it no thank you <laughs> I, i'm gonna do that right here and, I, and i'm gonna do it for free because that this is the mindset that now exists and it permeates the entire entertainment and media culture mm -hmm. right so it has dramatically affected the technology of of how a, how people can try and monetize it, and B, how people can try and become just successful in their craft. Mm -hmm. Well, so, so things did shift again a little bit to streaming where people are, you know, they're, they're paying something for it at least, right? It's not yeah. just the, necessarily the yeah. free downloads, there's subscriptions. Um, can you yes. comment a little bit about the economics of streaming to an artist? Absolutely, Dan. Uh, well, at present, it's not a very good um, model for making a living um in terms of you know uh, and I'll, I'll put it this way i've had a pretty i've had a fun run being in a in an indie pop band that had um some uh, like extraordinary in the sense we never anticipated it couldn't have made it happen kind of success and then 
benefited from, um, you know, international radio play and TV commercials and all that kind of stuff that made some of the songs um, make a disproportionate amount of money for, let's say, the size of the band that we really were. Um, but uh, and so when I look at the streaming numbers of the Dragonette records that are in the, you know, several million still per year or whatever, it's like a million and a half, maybe a month or something. The last time I looked, which was some time ago, but I would I the the point is, is that whether it's a million and a half or 1.8 million or 2.2 million listens per month, it doesn't really matter because the four thousand dollars per million plays that is divided up amongst all the stakeholders doesn't really amount to much when you include a record company, uh, you know, a management, a, a sunset management clause and the four stakeholders in the record um, and then the tax man and all that kind of stuff. And so the um, what would seem to be like these, these measurements of success, which would be like, Oh my God, we've got a million plays on a record, which is a, is a feat, you know, like to convince sure. 250,000 people to listen to your song four times or a million people to listen to it once or a hundred thousand, 10 times. That's a, that's a big thing, you know? Yeah. Um, so much so that when the young bands that I work with here in Toronto put out a record and they hit like 10,000 plays on Spotify, like there's a blitz on Instagram, about like, look how far we've come and a hundred thousand. It's like a, holy shit, let's go buy a house with a swimming pool. And, um, and these numbers don't, really add up to very much. And so streaming is a wonderful thing if you are on the um, this side of that that part of the curve that looks like uh, the, the Bruno Mars experience or the Drake experience or the Bieber experience or the Ed Sheeran experience, which is, you know, in some ways would be representative to the kind of representative of the kind of money they would be making in a traditional um, uh, let's say pre-streaming world where they'd be on the radio all the time and selling a lot of records that they would be making these kinds of multiples compared to the average artist that's out there. But the, um, but the number of artists who can, uh, I guess on the plus side, there are many more people who are having a hundred thousand people listening to their music every month who otherwise would not in a, let's say a more traditional scenario because radio wouldn't give them that tiny little time slice of what's available in a 24 hour window um, with three minute segments being the, the, the minimum amount of exposure you can offer to someone. Um, but on the other hand, the, um, the way that people pay for streaming, uh, i.e. I as a subscriber, um, makes it so that those who make, um, those who are getting all those plays, the, the Drakes, the Beavers, the Ed Sheerans, the whatever else, get, a, get the, more than the lion's share of your subscription money, which I think that as I, as a subscriber, um, and particularly being on both on several sides of this equation, I'm an artist. I am a rights holder in the form of a record company that owns some rights to some records. I'm a producer on other people's records, and I'm also a, an annual or a monthly subscriber. That it would be, I think, where streaming becomes a really wonderful tool for compensating artists for their work is whether is when your money that you pay for your monthly uh, subscription is divided pro rata amongst the songs that you listen to. Mm -hmm. And so that you thus get to kind of, this leans into the one thing that I feel is um, both artists and fans have been robbed of in this paradigm, which is that you don't really get to vote for or, or fin directly financially support your favorite artist anymore in the way that you did 30 years ago and you could buy the record you could buy another copy of the record to give to their friend you could buy the merch at the record at the concert that 
that people would come through other than also buying a ticket to the show where the lion's share of the money would go to the band as opposed to let's say live nation and that um you could join a fan club and buy all that kind of stuff which of course would be a wonderful opportunity to exploit fans of artists which people definitely did but if you nevertheless it created the illusion that fans could vote for the bands that they liked and i think we've all but lost that kind of opportunity other than buying a ticket to a concert that is basically paying live nation a rental fee on a hall that happens to feature your artist <laughs> and um buying a t-shirt which again is very not too much of it is it's it's not enough to vote for the artist it's not putting that kind of money in their pocket because the cost of touring has gone up and um everything else is like a digital vote it's a it's an it's an impersonal like heart on an instagram it's a listen to it once on spotify but it's an, it it's a drop in the bucket when it comes to advancing the artist so dan maybe it's it it's worth explaining maybe these different models so so today the way spotify works is i guess they pool uh, all the money from all the subscribers goes into a pool and artists receive a pro rata of their of the amount of streams. the streams yeah. from yeah. the of the total streams. And so you this system tends to disproportionately favor yeah. the big guys versus a system that you're describing, which I think is now being proposed by SoundCloud and a couple others, which is to go to what they call yeah. a fan. Was pro rata yeah. to the artists I listen to directly, which can potentially help independent artists a little bit more than oh, the absolutely. Model. Like I shudder to think how much of my money that I've paid to Spotify for I don't know how long now. I was a pretty early subscriber, but let's say, I mean, a, a tangible percentage of my money has gone to Drake. I've never listened to Drake one time on Spotify for that reason alone. I find it like unfair that I am subsidizing him when um the, the artists that i like are barely getting paid you know mm. um and to that to that extent that is again like there's always the the you know the yin yang of these whole experiences that on the one hand um and i there's a a wonderful uh kind of longer term um positive uh implication for this too um but on the one hand artists who have, who would never be heard anymore are all of a sudden their music is is activated because it's so easy to put it onto a, a you know a, a digital distribution platform and then people can listen to you them again even if it's just 10 people who like your stuff like your stuff is actually the value of your catalog whether it's a micro value or a, an enormous value is reawakened and the artist is kind of added into the stream of in in a way like kind of the infinite catalog of all the music that's ever been created and that's a wonderful opportunity created by spotify apple music etc cetera, etc cetera. but it is still disproportionate for the artists who are actually producing content that i listen to 70 percent of the time but literally one and a half percent of my money goes to them and so that's the 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 downside I'm, and and I mean, I don't know if whether we'll have time for it or not, but the, one of the things that I've been working on in, um, in a couple of different ways, some investments in some music tech companies that I really like, one of them is it, part of what motivates me is to think about the fact that just this precise thing of a music catalog being reawoken because somebody had the good sense to put this dormant catalog on Spotify and now 
you know, people over time are rediscovering this music, you know, like Sugarman would be an example of that. Mm. But, you know, now in this model is sure. that there are people. Um, uh, so on the, the pretty much every piece of music that if it's been listened to a very low threshold amount of time, but consistently at that, you know, that small number creates a, an, an um, like a, a, a piece of, of value that the artists and the stakeholders all of a sudden might be able to trade on, right? Which on the top end becomes, you know, Bob Dylan selling his publishing for $300 million and then trickling all the way down through every person who's got a piece of music that is producing some reliable amount of money now through a streaming service that they too can find a way to develop credit around it or have some form of a tradable commodity that music really wasn't ever before. And that makes sense, has always been the case for big publishing deals and all that kind of stuff. But as it trickles down into the hands of any artist who is getting played a few thousand times, there is in theory uh, a value, a tradable multiple value of what that music is generating as, uh, as a tiny little income stream. And that I think is a wonderful opportunity for that middle class of artists, which include the most people who are, you know, the hundred thousand or to the million plays a month who might, you know, several years from now, or hopefully not that long, be able to go to a bank and say, see, I get this amount of radio play every month. This is income in the same way that it's like a retirement fund. Right. Mm -hmm. And I would like to get a loan against this. And that's again, another wonderful opportunity created by this. Right. To sell your asset, basically the future royalties or revenues uh upfront essentially to monetize it or to yeah, leverage it yeah yeah which is so and the reason why i think that it's important is that records that sold and that there were copyrights like before napster etc a, a record deal had value because you could tell how many records people were going to buy you know by based on how many people bought and artists therefore had some they had they had in theory, they had value around that too. Their tiny little piece of their record deal or the record might even in a better scenario revert back to them over a period of time. Um, and they always had their publishing deals. But when the income model for music crashed through the floor because of Napster and still, I think this disproportionate kind of Spotify, et cetera, model, um, artists lost that, um, that kind of equity in anything because it was just like sand through our hands, right? And so now all of these pieces, all this music that's been, uh, lovingly created with no um, obvious upside or economic model um, over the last 20, 30 years may have this kind of renaissance um, mm. in terms of being of some value and uh, and bankable value for career artists who don't have to be Ed Sheeran. Very cool. Very cool. Another, I guess, byproduct of streaming, we, we in fact dedicated an entire episode to this, is the the, ten, the trend to listening to singles. And that, you know, potentially threatening the album as a format, you know, there was sort of a rise of the, of the album, uh, in the, in the seventies and eighties and sort of golden, golden era, which continued through CD sales into the nineties. And then now with streaming, uh, users are listening more to playlists and, you know, and, and, and songs as opposed to full albums. Do you have any perspective on that trend? That had its basis, uh, I think, before, um, before the solidification of uh, streaming and before the birth of internet music, as it were, the record labels, as they gravitated towards what I always called a sound scan existence, 
which was in the 60, in the prehistoric era, in the 60s and 70s and into the 80s, a record label had to wait a week before they found out the sales figures mm-hmm. for a band's album. And so there was a mindset uh, of development for an artist, right? Which was, okay, so we're going we're gonna to put some money, invest money in this band and you know, we're going to, it was a much longer time frame for bands to succeed. And as uh, the company SoundScan came into existence, their purpose was to inform record labels uh, up to the minute about record sales around the world. And as that happened, record labels changed their time frame and their approach from band development or music development to immediate return now. And if we don't get the immediate return three days from now, we're turning the tap off. The byproduct of the record labels shortening on an exponential rate their patience for uh, putting out money, putting out time, promotion, and effort on a band, the byproduct of them shortening that was that they also decided that they don't want to spend money on albums anymore. They're, the new deal not the band, but the actual deal (laughs) of record industry was that they started signing bands to singles deals, right? They didn't want to have to commit the money, time, or promotional effort to an album if the concept was, give me three singles and the rest can be garbage on the record, which was basically what the concept was for a very long time, to now we're going to sign you to a single. And if the single is successful or not successful, we're going to know it in 48 hours. And it, it, which is incredible because they used to allow, like there are some of the biggest bands in the world that every rock bands from the seventies and the eighties, like, I mean, sticks, uh, even Pink Floyd to a degree, but these bands that, that had an incredible monetary return for their record labels, like, like a hundredfold from their investment. It took these bands months, if not years of record company support to get to that level. Mm-hmm. And it, and their, the record company's investment was paid back in spades. Well, that was gone. They forgot all about that. It was 48 to 72 hour turnaround between we will release your single and we have dropped you. No joke. They have decided after in under a week that the, the, the band was done if the single didn't sell. So that was the genesis for how the record industry decided to treat itself as a singles act. Which was how it was in the fifties, right? I mean, the al- before the album, it was singles, and the and the labels will put that up. <laughs> but using the um, the uber criminal mindset of the nineteen forties and fifties record labels may not be the ultimate in you know professional practices. But they had decided this was not worth our time or effort. We're going to know in seventy two hours whether this sells, and then if it doesn't, then we're on to the next act. It was a byproduct of. Uh, the record industry losing too much money over time. It was also a byproduct of where technology was for basically the entire world. It had gone from, you get six channels of TV and you have to watch it at a certain time or else you're not going to see your show to I'm able to you know, record my show and watch it later to I'm able to pick my show and listen to, and watch it whenever I want after I record it. And this 
just naturally developed into the mindset that, I mean, it still currently exists, but they're irrelevant, so it doesn't matter, but to what the record labels had decided they wanted to do. We want to put out three minutes from you. We don't want an album. We don't want your life story, and you're not going to get a bunch of money. We'll talk again in in 72 hours after we've released the record. Then let's see. I mean, everything on is a a turnaround now that was inconceivable even 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. And so so now with streaming... Do you see that eroding even more? I mean, do you sort of envision a future where the album pretty much completely dies as a format? Well, it's interesting. I don't because, see that. Yeah, I, I don't see that either because there uh, <laughs> there may not be a monetary return, but there is an inordinate amount of freedom allowed to bands now through the streaming services. It's like, well, look, if I'm not going to get paid, then I'm going to put out the, the piece of work that I want because I, I think the new deal the band has proven from the beginning which was you know you can put out something that's very long and doesn't have a singer uh, and is, is somewhat experimental or definitely improvisational and people will will dig it right so if you can if you can if your music can resonate, with a very small percentage of the music listening population, which is, was always my theory. It's like, if we can hit 1% of the music listening population, then we're, we're doing a good job, right? And I think that that mindset has permeated throughout, excuse me, has permeated throughout all of the music industry, uh, at least in terms of bands. It's like, well, look, we're not trying to get a record deal anymore because there are no record deals. So let's put out a record that we want to put out. And the cost in terms of putting it out there is nil Mm -hmm. the cost of making it a slightly different story but the cost of putting it out there is nil if we're going to merely use spotify or streaming platforms as our as our base you're saying basically the artists the artists have nothing to lose by continuing to put it out the way they want to put it out and therefore you might as well keep putting out albums because that's the way you want to work and how you want to release your work and then there then there are super artists though too who are like have putting out an album if you're like I just looked at the last Justin Bieber record has 24 songs on it and it's like an album that he put out, you know, right. he's not, he doesn't singles are, they're all singles probably. I mean, I, you look at the plays on them and I, uh, where are we here? We are every, there isn't one, the top five songs, the lowest number of plays, 142 million up to 420 million. And Jeez. so you, the aggregate of that is a, is a really great life and a great, um, offering for fans too um because i think that to jamie's point when you were you know being the callous record companies like we don't want your life story story we just like we'll talk to you in 72 hours after the single comes out people do justin bieber's fans do want justin bieber's life story they will absorb anything that he has to say and it's a win-win situation for everyone to make that kind of album but these are you know this is the stratosphere of the uh, uh, like that he's earned his place there in the same way that people like Kanye earned his place for like putting out albums. People wanted to listen to like the the whole record that came out with Kanye. And I don't think it's, I think it's the opposite of disingenuous. I think it's a really genuine relationship between fan and artist. The trouble is, is that to be honest, I don't think that very many people can write that kind of content to capture people's imagination 20 different times for three minutes for a total of 60 minutes. Hmm. Like I can barely listen to a song before I'm looking at my phone. You know what I mean? And so, um, it, uh, and you're a musician. Yeah. 
but I, I don't think that the tech precludes it one way or another. I think that the tech and businesses have always gone hand in hand. And the um, and also, to be honest, so have and, and people contribute like the consumer contributes a lot to like how the tech is driven, what it's aimed at and uh, and the services that are provided, whether it's the artist making a single or the or Spotify making playlists of music that they're pretty certain that you'll like, but have. Uh, the only commonality that they have is the algorithm that is you. And, um, and there is an endless supply of increasingly great content to meet exactly your needs has nothing to do with the artist. You know, I just wanted to talk about playlists for a second. Playlists are almost like the new radio and uh, Dragonette has been featured on, you know, dozens and dozens of really high profile playlists. And uh, is that something that you know, as an artist, you're, you're conscious of or trying to get on playlists or is it something that just happens organically by DJs and tastemakers finding you? Uh, well, I mean, I, I stopped paying attention to, there isn't Dragonette, at least my part of Dragonette isn't making new music such that I'm conscious of like trying to get it, you know, more, more profile than as much profile as possible. But what I, I can say is, is that I, in this studio, I work a lot with people who are making their first record and they've got, you know, often they're signed to a pretty good record deal and whatever else. And so I watch the, the machinations of the management or the record label or the artists themselves, not necessarily desperate, but certainly solicitous of playlisting. And when they are put on a playlist, the artist gratefully goes out and Instagram posts like, thank you so much for putting me on this playlist because more or less it is the only way to kind of have an exponential uh, quote organic growth in plays, which given now that no one's touring um, and given that radio is increasingly rare air or worse um, irrelevant air, that these are the only places in which to grow beyond like, beyond organically which nobody has enough time for as jamie's 72 hour uh, window uh, is an extreme example of for a, a brief time i was spending a lot more time managing the dragonette business and i was doing that out of uh, the office of uh, entertainment one e1 that's got a really great very progressive dynamic music department and i remember um sitting in a meeting talking about the uh the upcoming um, pitch to Spotify, the, 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 the Spotify girl in LA who was, you know, going to come in and talk to us and, um, and how, like what songs were going to get pitched to her and, and the whole, like, and this is, and beyond that, it's like, it's not even the song alone. That's important. It is here's our marketing campaign. That's going to support this song such that you guys as Spotify don't go out on a limb and promote this song. And then we look like chumps or amateurs behind you this is like, we've got this, the, a, com a comprehensive promotional package. And then these are being pitched to like this young woman who's like got a big, big role at Spotify, who then at one point sits back and kind of laughs and says, you know, it's so funny that I'm sitting here with the CEO of the music department of Entertainment One. It's like, you know, it's, we're all joking and it's all friendly. She goes, three years ago, my bosses were like hammering on on record companies doors being like would you please take a meeting with us so that we can tell you about this thing called spotify and now we give them 10 minutes to pitch their best stuff because the tables have flipped entirely wow and um it is uh and so that is the power of playlists right there is to answer your question mm -hmm. sorry dan you told me a story one time with regards to spotify uh and i, I playlists uh the currency 
that they use it as currency to get their ba- to get bands to come and play promotional shows for them. Was that was that what was oh, happening? Yeah, yeah. I I mean, this was say, um, but the, the I, value. I think it was based on an article that I read. Yeah, it's like it's not payola because we know that payola gets people in trouble, and we don't take money for stuff. But like, wow, Bruno Mars is like all over every playlist, and oh my god, he's also playing the wedding at the the CEO of Spotify for free. <laughs> like that's so crazy. It just he maybe he was in town. Maybe, you know, um, <laughs> and there were all these so, these uh, Spotify public events as well uh, where yeah. they would extend an invitation if a band wanted to, you know, come and set up six hours early and then perform uh, two one hour sets. We'd love to have you, you know, I mean, we were yeah. just talking about what bands we wanted to add to our next big monthly playlist yeah. and you guys came up and we figured what better way to uh see what you guys are up to than to have you play our party for free uh, and this and this is the regular thing but the trouble is that this is actually it is a mutually beneficial relationship and that's the thing i think for in those like in those early halcyon days of like how when spotify was discovering its own power and um was uh also kind of competing for market share and also just for penetration, these would be mutually beneficial things that would take place, right? You do, you do an event that's Spotify branded. You've got an artist there that you're going to support because the artist is supporting you. The fans get to see them. It's all one big kind of happy ecosystem. It, I, I don't think that there's anyone out there who thinks that Spotify or any of the streaming services are the devil in the way that people vilified record companies. And um, But I will say that one of the unintended tragedies of this that actually puts record companies in a good light is that when record revenues are per play so low, other than when you get up to those superstar artists where those big record deals still exist, you know, Drake and Bieber and all those guys are getting phenomenal money for their next advances for their records and whatever else, um, is that as it uh, hollowed out the the record revenue for up and coming artists or new artists or developing artists is that the record budgets just all but went away. And then Spotify and Apple and all the other, you know, services didn't step in to fill in the gaps and say like, Oh, don't worry. Like we'll contribute to a new artist fund and underwrite that $10,000 recording budget. There just was no more money. So artists actually have become the ones who are self-funding projects that are effectively finished and delivered to record companies whose only guarantee that they can offer is we'll get it on Spotify and we'll do our best to get it in some playlists. Like, so, so before you got this upfront money from the label and all the baggage, maybe that came with that down the road, the most expensive money, at least, at least they were fun. At least they were funding the production of the record. Whereas what you're saying in the modern era is that there's no money for that. And so as independent artists, you've had to go, and scratch and claw money together to be able to have enough to to create an album and unfortunately or fortunately again because this is all like you know ups or pros and cons is that um there is no dearth of good music out there in fact great music is being all made all the time thanks again to the technology of the fact that i'm talking to you guys on my on my ipad i've made a great record on my ipad i'm sitting in a studio that all of my $25,000 of boutique gear that I've had here that I haven't turned on for eight years is eclipsed by the digital power of my little Mac mini that cost me a thousand bucks, you know? And so anyone can make a record and they don't need those recording budgets, but it's not so much about the, 
paying for the studio time to make a record. What it is about is buying runway for people to develop as artists so that they become David Bowie, who only really was interesting after his third record or, you know, Elton John, the same thing, or, you know, all these like iconic super brands that are billion dollar brands happened because record companies paid for their rent and their tea and their, you know, shitty British sandwiches for the however many years it took for them to become a good artist. And that's the kind of the funding that is not like that hasn't become any cheaper. In fact, it's only become more expensive rent and the cost of living for artists is, you know, it's first world for the most part, modern, urban, New York, San Francisco, LA, Toronto rents or whatever. And that's completely out of, out of reach for most people. They can make a record for 800 bucks. They can't, you know, pay $20 rent to do that. And that's the economics of getting your song on Spotify with a hundred plus, a hundred thousand plays. You'll get 20 bucks in your pocket when you're done. We'll be back in a moment after this brief commercial break. Our episode today is brought to you by Boombox. Boombox is a mobile app where you play in music leagues with your friends and face off in friendly song selection competitions. Each week you submit a song to match a theme and the person who had the most votes wins the round. So Matt, our theme this last week was find a song by an artist with less than 100,000 streams on Spotify. Can you tell us how things went? Well, this was a fun round because you had to dig a little bit deeper, um, you know, go for some maybe lesser known bands. And uh, our friend Raleigh actually totally cleaned up. Someone submitted everything by his band, Vicky Von Vicky, and it cleaned up with 11 votes. That's actually the most so far this game. And, and it was enough to put him in the lead. It's going to be I hard have, to catch up now. Yeah, he's, he's firmly in the lead with 24 points. I'm at 16. I don't have a chance this game. You've got 19 points. I just want to catch or beat you this round. Not going to happen. If you want to know more about Boombox, you can find it at boomboxsoftware.com or go to the Apple App Store or Google Play Store and search for Boombox Musically. And we're back. So another technology that's that's changed things a lot is social media and uh you know both the new deal and dragonet have big followings on instagram how important is it for you guys to engage with fans on social media it's massive uh it is a fundamental building block it was a fundamental building block and it still is in our existence as a band our relationship between our fans in the new deal uh particularly in the scene that we um inhabit which is in the sort of electronic jam scene is crucial uh it goes back to the very beginning i mean when we started one of the very first things that we had decided was that we were going to maintain and had to maintain a very strong relationship with our fan base and i mean that involved i mean if you want to go back to the very beginning it involved mailing lists it involved putting sending out stuff to our fans like via the mail you had 800 people on a mailing list and it cost you you know 150 bucks to print it out to get the the postage and everything else um and then the minute that we were able to embrace a digital slash internet slash you know precursor to social media uh platform we jumped on it i mean it was email at first email, it was list. email lists 
uh, which was huge because we went from having 800 people on a mail list that took us three days to put something together to having initially 10,000 people on our email list that we could send out a blast in five seconds, as we all know. And then as, as social media developed uh, for the New Deal, there was an expectation for a lot of bands to be able to provide more and more content to their fans and more than just, hey, how's it going? Um, you know, Merry Christmas, Happy Fourth of July, whatever. Yeah, it became, and we embraced it in a, in a slightly skewed way, but it became expected that bands would put out on a daily basis a minimum of a 60-second video clip or audio clip of something, right? Mm -hmm. This became the way that bands remained engaged with their fans. And it was no longer, and much like many expectations in the record industry, it was no longer, okay, it's been a couple weeks, I'm looking forward to hearing something from the New Deal. It's, you know, we would get uh, calls or emails from our management saying, guys, it's been like three days and there's been nothing new posted on social media. What's going on? And it's like, well, <laughs> nothing's going on. That's why we haven't posted anything, right? You know, the New Deal sort of marched to the beat of its own drummer at times, but we were like, well, they'll get something when they want to get something, but that's not a viable plan if you wish to, to you know, be relevant in, in the uber modern uh, social media music industry. You are available and on call all the time mm -hmm. and there are interview clips that you've done on the tour bus or you're sitting in the airport lounge and you're making a little film and then you're posting it before you get on the plane because you're going to be on the plane for five hours and there's going to be nothing for you to post it became an entirely new baseline for what was considered acceptable and unacceptable in your relationship and your engagement with your fans it just became normal that this is what you do on a daily basis mm. it changed fans expectations of their band right it was no longer this is exciting i'm looking at these guys live on stage i have only listened to the record i didn't know what they looked like which was the case for me for a number of bands i went to see a band i was like oh that's what they look like i i didn't know that i thought they were gonna be tall or short or whatever now it's like yeah now i, I saw these guys in the airport seven hours ago and now i see them on stage so it's like a different approach to to how somebody views how the audience views the artist, but as far as engagement, uh, it is it, well now it's irreplaceable. There's nothing else. It's just it's social media. You don't have to send email lists. You don't do anything. You keep engaged with your fans on a daily basis, multiple times a day. Hmm. Right. So I I do a lot of social media. I mean, it, when the New Deal is active, right now, you know, due to circumstances, we're not active. But when we are, I, I was when we were on tour, I was putting it out there two or three, four times a day, just something, you know, sound check, lunch airport coffee and maybe it may be the wrong demographic but if you guys spent much time on tiktok you know we've seen right. no. that tiktok has become this massive phenomena in music launching <laughs> new artists and yeah. yep. and you know it's something that's probably not matching well with you know our age group but yeah. but it is it is a it is an undeniable force now um it's my kids it's what they it's how they find their music yeah yeah, yeah. it's tiktok Right. I'm sure. I mean, you know, Matt, I know, I know your family, so I can imagine it's the same way. hundred percent. I, I, I asked them, they said they, they have not like learned of a new song aside from TikTok probably yeah. in the last yeah. year. Like every yeah. new song oh. has come through TikTok. Yeah. Forget YouTube. If you say YouTube, yeah. they're like, what are you 30? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, no, I'm not 30 actually. Yeah. I'm older than that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you mentioned also in, you know, in, in the COVID era this last year, a lot of artists have moved their shows online. Is that something you guys have experimented with or thought about? 
we've thought about it. I, 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 and I've, I've contemplated it in terms of like a, a theoretical thing. And I'm, and, and I'm working on a couple of projects around that with uh, artists that have nothing. To, I'm, I'm not the artist in that case. I'm just curious about the, the tech, not as a, I don't want it to be a replacement for live concerts. I like the idea of it being like another way of consuming music um, mm -hmm. like TikTok is or YouTube or whatever. I just find that the offering is up until now is less compelling than doing nothing at all. <laughs> you know, like uh, I think that there, there can be with, if everybody had a VR headset at home, um, we could do some pretty amazing stuff, you know, or you had a giant TV and great speakers and whatever. Um, it's just hard to imagine. Most people are consuming media through a telephone, which or sorry, that sounded like I'm 50 um, through <laughs> a, uh, through their, their, whatever their device, telephonic device. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and I think there's stuff it's, it's cool. It's just not, um, it doesn't retain people's attention in the same way that an immersive, or like a, a real immersive concert does. If you've got, maybe when you've got a, a VR headset, we could start talking, but, and again, I think it's demographic based for the new deal. We are, I know that our fans like to go to concerts and that if we happen to be the band that's playing there, then they're like, wait, wicked, the new deal's playing. But if it's not us, it's going to be another band or another band because what their first love is concerts, live concerts. And then several bands will meet that criteria. Mm -hmm. um, and I think uh, for uh, that, however, that has nothing to do with, um, you know, hip hop artists appearing in a video game as an avatar of themselves and you know blowing 40 million kids away or um uh, there's a part of uh, there's a company called sansar who are the mm -hmm. kind of visual virtual engine behind some pretty awesome music festivals that are taking place where the beginnings of like interactive community and engagement and the idea of people being able to virtually travel to a music festival and hang out not unlike the reason why people go to fish shows if you can do that without spending four grand and a week of your time and leaving your kids with your parents to go and do that. Instead, you can just blow your brains out for eight hours and in a headset or on a really great computer system. I think there's some value to that. and People are putting energy behind it. I'd love to participate in that, but I think it's got to be at a level that is a, is a compelling offering. And I think the way that things are, are posited right now, it's like, we'll just do this until COVID's over. And that's not, um, it's not the, it, it, it won't replace what we do live. And I would rather stick to what we do live until we're good at the other thing. Mm -hmm. And the other thing's good enough to do that. Uh, we also like to ask our guests if they have any recommendations on new music. What are you listening to lately? And also how you find new stuff. So uh, Jamie, let's start with you. Oh man, new stuff. I, I'm, I'm, I listen to a lot of music, but I listen to a lot of music that's not new. I will, however, say in the past, I guess, year or two, uh, one guy that has really uh, drawn my attention uh, is a guy named Michael Kiwanuka. I don't know if you know Kiwanuka. Oh, yeah. He's a, yeah. He's a, yeah, I love him. He's yeah, a, great. I guess he's, Su he's a Sudanese dude who grew up in England, and his music resonates pretty strongly with me. There's an album called Trust in the Life Force of the Deep Mystery, and that's by an, uh, a jazz fusion band, more like Ma Vishnu Orchestra. They're called The Deep Comet, I believe. Or no, they're called The Comet is Coming. Uh, that is a band of the comet is instrumental. <laughs> the comet is coming, and they are an instrumental band that are new, and they play some very interesting sort of electronic-y dance jazz stuff that 
that's pretty cool to listen to if you're into that sort of thing. So from one end to the other, there's Kiwanuka and then there's The Comet is Coming. Those are two things that I've been listening to recently that have been getting me off. Cool. Dan, I'm sure, has a list of about a dozen things. He's always up on the on the latest. I, I'm not, because, uh, but I probably will be because I... Um, <laughs> oh, please. Uh, no, no, what I... And it's funny. I love a playlist called The Golden Hour on Spotify. Um, and I, um, I would just tell you, like, I could... If you played me one of the any one of the 85 songs that are on that playlist, I'd be like, I love that song. I love that song. I love that song. Now it's separate. it's often because I've just I've listened to that playlist a lot. But it's like Golden Hour was made for me. And everything that's on it is awesome. It is the uh and again, and I don't even care to know who the artists are. I mean, I've saved a bunch of the songs and I could go and tell you who they are, but um, I don't know whether uh it, for me, the kind of music that I like is um, is musical, i.e., um, kind of melody forward um, groove music that uh, suggests that people like have a have a uh, a story to tell with a compelling, mem- a memorable melody line and w- incredibly well executed feel underneath it. And that every song on 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 Golden Hour is like that. Solid recommendations. Noted. Yeah. Going to be listening yeah. to those today. So if people want to uh, follow, follow your work, uh, where should they go? Oh, what, where would they go? The new deal.com. Well, yeah. Or the new deal. Yeah. Or on the Facebook. That's the best. I mean, it's, it's, it used to be, you go to our website and you look at everything there, but that's no longer the case, right? Like we didn't really get into that, but there's no like you. Nobody goes to anybody's website anymore to look for information, right? That that's, uh, you know, as we talked about with the with the social media band engagement with the fans. It's like no, if you're gonna find out about the band, if you want to get engaged with the band, then you look on their social media, right? So it's all about social media for the New Deal as well. I mean, there's the the New Deal Instagram and the New Deal Facebook would be the place for finding out up to the minute information about the band. Well, Dan and Jamie, it was an awesome conversation. Thanks so much for being on the show. Yeah, thanks so much, guys. Thank you. It was great. Mike, Matt, thanks so much for having us. You've been listening to Beat Seeker with your hosts, Matt McButter and Mike Wider. If you like what you've been hearing, please like, subscribe, and share this podcast. If you really like it and want more, you'll find bonus content and exclusives on our Patreon. Visit beatseeker.fm. That's B-E-A-T seeker.fm and on social media at BeatSeekerPod. And giving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts helps too. This program was recorded at the Devil Lake Studios and the Tunnel Under Arundel. The program is produced by Matt McButter, Mike Wider, and Kate McCartney. Thanks for tuning in, and keep seeking.